do ask that you'd bless this time in the teaching of your word and uh, that you would just draw us to yourself that as we uh, look at these last chapters of the um, of looking at the life and reign of david uh, lord we just thank you that uh, we've learned and gleaned so much from first and second samuel and lord you're not through and you desire to just bless us tonight as well as as we finish this book and Lord, so may we make application, may our hearts be tender and soft before you and our ears open to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. And so chapter 22, then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so this psalm was um, written probably earlier in David's life, that is, after the death of Saul. Of course, Saul had pursued David for all those years in the wilderness. And as we start at Second Samuel, it starts with the death of Saul there on Mount Gilboa. And then David began to reign. And in Second Samuel chapter 8, it tells us that David had rest from all of his enemies. So it's probably during that time that David writes this psalm. And, and this psalm, with minor variations, is the same as Psalm 18 that is in your Bible. But as David um, composed this song as a younger man, during his life, and as he gets towards the end of his life, he can go back to that song, this psalm that he had written, and, and he knows it was true for his life. We look at David's life, he had an incredible life. I mean, here he was anointed as the new king of Israel when he was just a teenager. He was uh, just uh, young out there as a shepherd boy with the sheep uh, there in the fields of Bethlehem. And he would be used of the Lord as he would kill the champion Goliath from Gath. He would uh, be Saul's armor bearer. He went through all that, that turmoil with Saul. So he went through some great victories and some great times of faith. He also went through some diff very difficult times. And throughout David's life, and as he comes now t to the end of his life, he could see God's faithfulness, and he could sing this song once again. And he begins in verse 2 as he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. And notice here that as he he gives this psalm, as he singing this song here, and, and once again, as he recognizes the goodness and the faithfulness of God, that he is our provider, that he doesn't just say that the Lord is a rock and the Lord is a fortress and a deliverer, uh, that the Lord brings strength and he brings salvation. What he says here is the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He, he's my deliverer. He's my strength. He's my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge. He's everything that I need. And so he makes it personal, and that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian, is that we do have a personal relationship with the true and the living God who provides these things for us because he is our rock as well. He is our deliverer. We can say in our hearts, Lord, you're my strength. You're my salvation. Lord, you have saved me. And Lord, I can call upon you who is worthy to be praised. And we can call upon the name of the Lord. And so as we call upon him, we see that David continues here, 
in verse 5 is he, he looks at the hopeless situations that he went through in his life and we covered that. We've seen the stories how he went through tremendous difficulties and upheaval in his life. And he says, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. And that's the good news about being a child of God and belonging to him is that when we cry out to him our voice is heard the Lord hears our cries it enters into his ears and I don't know about you but particularly when I've been through difficult times and that's what David is talking about that he's been you know in those times where he says Sheol that is is speaking of of hell the Hebrew word when it was literally hell around me the ungodliness that pursued me that I called to the Lord and you heard my voice and that my voice was heard in your ears. And that's the good news about being a child of God is he hears our cries. We can cry out to him. And I pray and I hope that all of us that we would do that. And sometimes I know in my own life that when I've been through difficulties, when I'm crying out to the Lord, I feel like maybe the, my prayers kind of bounce off the ceiling and they come back. But God's word tells us here that no, he hears us and our voices are heard and he's the one that then begins to work in our lives as he worked for David mightily, verse 8, then the earth shook and trembled and the foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed, bowed, that is, the uh, heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Verse 12, he made darkness uh, canopies around him and dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. And from the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. And the Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts and vanquished them. And then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. In verse 18, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. In verse 20, he also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. So here David, as he says, that God heard my cry and God worked in a powerful way for David, and he will work for you and for me in a powerful way. And David recognized that God was working because in verse 18, they were too strong for me. And situations that oftentimes that we face in our lives is too difficult, it's too strong, it's too hard, isn't it? And the good news is, is we can turn to the Lord that works in such a mighty way as, as you see this poetic language that, that David writes about that the foundations of the world are uncovered and, and, and you know, coals of fire were kindled and, and dark waters and thick clouds of the skies and the canopies all around him you know, are, are subject to him. And, and David is, is talking about the greatness and the awesomeness of God. And that's the thing for you and I to remember, that when we are surrounded and facing that which is too much for us, that it isn't too much for our Lord. And we can call out to Him and cry to Him, and He hears us, and then the Lord is going to work in our situation. Why? Because verse 20, He delights in you, just like David says, He delighted in me. And that's what I hope that all of us would understand, that as His child, understand that He delights in you, that He cares about you, 
that he sees you and he hears you. So David is just continuing to praise the Lord. In verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Um, he, for all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I also was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. And therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. And so here David talks about how in his life that he desired to act righteously in even in those difficult situations. It is kind of interesting that David, when he wrote this song here, this psalm that uh, he would write after Saul was uh, killed there on Mount Gilboa, and God delivered him from Saul, and then he had rest from his enemies, that David oftentimes, before his sin with Bathsheba, he talks about how he had no iniquity and that he dealed righteously with, with others and with the situation. And it's interesting, when you observe those psalms after his sin with Bathsheba, he doesn't talk about that as much. But here at this time, he talks about his desire, and it was David's desire, through his life, even though David sinned, even though that, that he failed in, in different areas of his life, one thing that he desired to do was to, to act righteously before the Lord. And here's something that you and I as a Christian need to remember, that when we are faced with difficult situations and people come against us like they did with David, that we need to let the Lord determine how it is that we're going to respond in that situation. Because we saw what David was Saul, didn't he? That David said that I am not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And we are told in 1 Samuel several times that, that David acted righteously and was blameless before Saul. He was one that wanted to please the Lord in that situation. Even though David had opportunity to kill Saul, he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And we see that David, that he acted righteously in that way. You and I, it's real important that when we are faced with those situations where it's very easy to react out of the flesh and out of anger and out of bitterness and out of jealousies or envies, that we don't allow that to take place. That we go to that place of prayer to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to, to react in a way that is pleasing to you and honors you. Let the Lord determine how you're going to react. And that is so very, very important. And you've heard me say this before, but, you know, when you end up being attacked or you end up being, you know, the subject to gossip or whatever it might be in your family or at work or, or even in ministry, the thing is, is that people may try to ruin your reputation, but listen, only you can ruin your character. Only you can ruin your character. And Lord, in this situation, that it is difficult and where I could very easily react out of the flesh, Lord, I want to honor you, and I want to react out of godly integrity and godly character, and I want to please you, Lord. I want to let you determine how it is I'm going to react. Because why? Because, Lord, you see me, and you're my deliverer. You're my fortress. You're my help. You're the one that is my salvation. Lord, you hear me. You're going to work in this situation. And David knew the faithfulness of God working in his life. So he speaks about how he desired to, to live and, and respond in righteousness. In verse 26, with the merciful you shall 
you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. All throughout the scripture, God talks about how he will deal with those who are prideful, those who are haughty. That pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs chapter 16. And pride is such a terrible sin. It's what caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. Here is this beautiful archangel in heaven, a worship leader, and yet he fell because of pride. He said, as Isaiah tells us, that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit on the throne. He wanted to be worshipped like God, and he fell and became Satan. And that's what pride does. And pride can come into our hearts in such subtle ways. And that's why it's very important that every day that, Lord, I need you to check my heart to see if there's any pride that is there. Am I being haughty? And we can do that in such subtle ways. We may not express it to people or, uh, you know, just blatantly, but maybe in our hearts and in our attitudes that we begin to think that we're better than others, that we become prideful and we become haughty. And, and God is going to deal with this, as the scripture says, if we are. And the Lord says, you are to be humble, and you are to be one, to be thankful for his incredible grace and mercy that is shown in your life. None of us have any reason to boast in ourselves. We don't. We are to be thankful. We are to throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord. And we are to live our lives in humility. And so the Lord here, is, he says that you will save the humble people and the haughty ones, you're going to bring them down. I have seen people, and, and so have you, that they have been brought down because of pride, because they're haughty, because they thought that they were going to get away with things, and, and their pride ended up doing them in. I have seen men in ministry that were used of the Lord, and all of a sudden, you know, as the ministries grew, and as, as things, you know, were happening, they became prideful, and, and all of a sudden... You know, in that pride, the Lord brought them down. And they were brought down low. And they are no longer being used of the Lord. So we want to make sure that we stay humble before the Lord. And, and here he's saying that the eyes, your eyes on the haughty, that you may bring them down. Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. I have verse 31 underlined. His way is perfect. And all throughout the scriptures, he tells his people that his way is good, that my ways are good, that I am faithful, that there is blessing. I come to give you life and life abundantly, Jesus said, to know that his ways are perfect. And you see, the Lord desires for us to just yield to him and to yield to his ways and know that his word is proven, that he is faithful to his word and to his promises. And get that settled in your heart if you haven't. Because sometimes people can think, you know what, Lord, I, I hear your word, but, you know, I don't think that's going to work. And I think that the older that you get and, and as you grow in the Lord and as you grow in God's word, the more that you realize that, Lord, your word is true. And I see it worked out in my life and I see it worked out in other people's life. Your word is proven. It is true. You are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promises. 
Your way is perfect. I was teaching high school kids this morning. I teach a class, Old Testament survey, and, and um, you know, in those high school students, I got a whole class full of high school students, and we we're talking about Abraham, and we're just starting to, to learn about, you know, the historical books and how God called Abraham out to be a great nation, and God gave Abraham a promise that I'm going to make you a great nation. And your descendants are going to number the stars of the heaven. And when God made that promise to Abraham in chapter 12, that we know that it was Abraham that didn't have any children, him and Sarah at that time. And it was Abraham that had to wait 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. But God's ways are perfect. And his word is proven. And then we know that Paul the Apostles, we're going to see in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, is he uses Abraham as, as an example of justification by faith, that he also would make that statement there, that what God has promised, that Abraham knew that he was able to perform. Do you know that? That what God has promised, that he is able to perform. That his word is true, his word is, is proven, and his ways are perfect, and he's a shield to all who trust in him. In verse 32, for who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He sets me on, um, sets me on my high places and teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. slip. And so he gives us stability in our lives as we place uh, ourselves on the rock, Jesus Christ, as we allow him to be our strength. As we stand fast in him, he gives us that strength and stability. In verse 38, I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You also give me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even the Lord, but he did not answer them. And then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. And so we see here that you didn't mess around with David, did you? As he talks about how, you know, he did away with his enemies. And, but what he's saying is, in the battles that I won against, that, Lord, you gave me the victory in that. You are the one that fought for me. You're the one. Your ways are perfect, and your word is true. And, Lord, you're everything that I need. You're faithful to me. And so I was able to defeat my enemies. And you and I, we have to go out and do battle all the time, don't we? Because it is a spiritual battle that is out there. And know that the Lord is going to work for you and he's going to give you victory. You see, as a Christian, we go out to do battle. We already have won the victory, the victory in Christ Jesus. But the enemy still wants to do battle. So make sure you put on the whole armor of God and understand that you have victory and that as you put on the armor of God, that you're going to continue to have victory in the battles that you face every day that you go out in that spiritual battle. And then verse 44, as we will then finish the chapter in this song, that you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. 
the foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. And so he just gives thanks and praise to God in chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. Whenever we go through the scriptures and we see men of faith that they're given their last words, one of the things that we want to do is be careful to really listen in on what they have to say, don't we? It's like Moses when he gave his last words to the children of Israel. Hey, I'm going to die here on Mount Nebo. And he gave his last words. And as you read that in the book of Deuteronomy, there's Moses and he's pouring out his heart to the children of Israel, one who had shepherded them for 40 years and went through so much with the children of Israel out there in the wilderness. And he says, keep the Lord's commandments, walk in his ways. And then Moses would also begin to prophesy how he knew that the time was going to come when they were going to forsake the Lord, and they would go into captivity. And you can just sense that Moses, I'm sure that his heart was broken. But the last words of Moses is he's saying, you know, walk in the ways of the Lord, keep his commandments, be blessed by the Lord, and, and keep the covenant that he's made with you. The Lord is so good. We know that it was Joshua and his last words that he gave to the nation. He said to them that you guys choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You can look at Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy chapter 4, those last words that have recorded there in the New Testament of Paul, as he would say to them, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And he would give those last encouraging words in that epistle. So whenever we have somebody that gives last words, and it would be true in your own life, that if you knew that this was the last time that you were going to address your loved ones and people that were dear to you, you want to make sure that it's special. You want to make sure that you're sharing your heart with them. So here is David as we see his last words. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So here um, we see as Uh, He says that he was raised up on high, the anointed of God. We need to be anointed in our lives for ministry. David was anointed. He wasn't just somebody that was, you know, super strong and all of this. He was anointed in battle. He was anointed to be the king. He was anointed to be the sweet psalmist of Israel. He wrote at least 73 of the 150 psalms that we have in Scripture. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, verse 2, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And I like that name of God, don't you, there in, in um, verse 3, the rock of Israel. The rock of Israel. It speaks again of strength and stability, and it's the Lord that gives us that. And here he says something very important. He says that those who rule, that they need to rule justly and they need to rule in the fear of god i think that's an important message for any of us who lead dads husbands any of us that lead at the workplace any of us that desire to leave in ministry that we need to make sure that it is just in other words that it's right that we're desiring to do what is right before the lord and we do it in the fear of the lord 
that we do it with a sense of, Lord, I revere you. And then, you know, Paul the Apostle, when he was addressing those who were masters or those who were employ, you know, employers, that he said, remember that you have a Father who is in heaven who sees you. So you make sure that you treat those servants or those employees in fairness and goodness, as he talks about in the book of Colossians. We know that as husbands, as leaders that are homes, that the emphasis is to love and cherish unconditionally and, and to lead in that kind of way. It was Jesus that said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you don't lord over like the Gentiles do, but you're to be the servant of all. And here is David. He's already talked about humility before the Lord and depending on the Lord and, and to do as you rule over men, do you do it as you are just and you do it in the fear of the Lord a reverence of the Lord, knowing that we answer to Him and we are going to be accountable to the Lord. So good advice here and, and good word given to us in verse 4, and He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. And so again, using this kind of this poetic language, speaking of how the Lord is light and freshness and peace. But here's the thing is the Lord is working in your life. And as you are leading, you shall be like the light. You shall be like the the morning when the sun rises and, and like the tender grass and clear shining after the rain. In other words, if you are leading in the way that God has called you to lead husbands and fathers and you know employers and those who are called to lead in ministry, you're going to be one that you're going to radiate light. You're going to be one that you're going to be refreshing to others and, and you're going to be one that the peace of God is going to be in you and you're going to be one that just the, the peace of God is radi- going to radiate from you. Do you bring that to people? I mean, truly, being a witness is not just with the words that you say, but in the way that you live your life and the way you conduct yourself. When people around you that are close to you, that you have opportunity to talk to and work alongside and minister to, are you a light to them? Are you refreshing to them? Do they see the peace of God? Do you bring peace into the situation in your home or at the workplace? Are you that way? That's what David is speaking about. Hey, you who rule over, you need to do it justly in the fear of God, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to be refreshing to others and a light to others and peace. There's going to be something different about you. And although my house is not so with God, yet, verse 5, he says, He has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, and he not make it, will he not make it increase? And so he talks about, of course, that covenant that God made with David in Second Samuel chapter 7, that David, your throne is going to be established, and from your throne, your descendants is going to be the Messiah that's going to come, and it's going to be a throne that's going to last forever. And David was honored by that, that God would do that. He knew that he wasn't deserving of it, And he knew that it was based on God's faithfulness. And so he was just thankful for it. And and, uh, he says, this is all my salvation. This is all my desire. Listen, David, right now at the peak of his reign, probably one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth, certainly in that area. I mean, he had it all. But he says, this is the one desire. This is all my salvation. 
is you, Lord. And this covenant that you made with me, and, and of course David would express that in the Psalms, that one thing I desire, that I seek after the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So can I ask us a question? If you had one thing that you were to desire, what would it be? What would it be? Would it be the things of the world, material things and possessions and power and all of this? Or is it, Lord, my desire is just to draw closer to you and know you more, be used of you, Lord, and to just rejoice in the fact that I belong to you and I belong to heaven. To seek you, Lord, and to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And that was David. That was his heart. So I wonder he's called a man after God's own heart. And verse 6, But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. And so here that he trusts that God would deal with his enemies. The wicked are like, you know, thorns, and God warned the children of Israel not to deal with them, with idols, and there would be a thorn to their sides. So David, once again, he never was one that worshipped idols. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. And these are the names of the mighty man of David that had Jehibbehishbeth, the Tachmonite, chief among the captains. He was called a Dino, the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. How would you like to have that name? And Ahohite, one of the three mighty men, with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel retreated. And he rose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herarite. The Philistine had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. And so chapter... 23 as you begin in verse 8 to the end of the chapter it talks about david's mighty men and these may be just names and we think why would these guys be recorded but i think that we learn so much from these guys and remember that it was in first samuel chapter 22 when these guys first gathered around david that they were the ones that it says that were in distress and in debt and discontented the least likely to be mighty men and yet they would hang around David, they would be with the king, they would follow after him, they would be faithful to him, and they became mighty men. And they are indeed mighty men, aren't they? Paul would say to the Corinthian believers that God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world to put down the wise and to put down the strong and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are that no man can glory in his presence. And God uses ordinary people like you and me, and I really believe that the Lord desires for each one of us that are here tonight that he wants us to be mighty men and mighty women of God. And he chooses the foolish things to put down the wise. And he chooses the weaks to to put down the strong, to confound the strong and, and the wise. And you see, God loves to use ordinary people like you and me to become mighty men and, and mighty women of God. And we can learn from these guys. I mean, look at these three that were listed, three main mighty men. First of all, you had Adino, and he killed 800 men all at one time. Now, this is the strength of Samson, isn't it? 
This is not normal human strength. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon him, just as Samson was a one-man, you know, wrecking machine there in the book of Judges, killing a thousand men with the, you know, jaw of a donkey. We know that here is something similar. Eleazar took on 800 guys at once, and he killed them. So here God used him. If you have a King James, it says that he lifted up his hands. And he ended up defeating these guys. And if you want to be a mighty man or a mighty woman of God, you need to be one that lifts up your hands in prayer and in praise to God. We see the second one that's listed here is as um, after him was Eleazar. And he was one that he also, you know, defeated the, the Philistines. And as he arose, it said his hand was weary. His hand, his sword stuck to his hand. I mean, that's how... He had it gripped. If you want to be a mighty man or a mighty woman of God, you've got to be a, word, a man or a woman of the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, as Paul says, part of that armor in Ephesians chapter 6. So you need to be a person who worships, a person who prays, a person who is the, uses the Word of God that is in your hand. Whenever I see somebody that has a Bible with them, I know that, wow, there's a person that's probably doing very well man or woman of the word of God. And, and that's what my prayer and hope for us here at Calvary Chapel, that we would just continue growing in the word of God and being able to use the word of God in our daily lives and as we minister to others in the battles that we fight. And then thirdly, we see here that there was Shama, and he was one that the king told him, what I want you to do is guard this field of beans here and That's what you're to do. And all of a sudden the cry goes out that the Philistines are coming and everybody split, but he stationed himself there and he took on the Philistines and defeated them all by himself there. And you see, if you want to be mighty in the Lord, not only are you a man or woman of prayer and of the word of God, but also stand fast in the faith. And that's what we're told in the New Testament. You plant yourself in the promises of God and in the word of God and plant yourself there and say, Lord, I hear your word and I hear your voice and I know your commandments and your principles and what your word says to me and I'm going to plant myself there and I'm not going to move. Because the king has given me this command, just as David the king told Shammah, I want you to guard these, these beans. And so that's how you can become a mighty man or woman of God, by the example of these guys in verse 12 or verse 13, as we see that then the three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam and the troop of Philistines encamped at the valley of Rephraim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So here's David. He's in the cave of Adullam, and he's there in that dusty, hot cave, and he's thinking, oh, how I'd love to have a drink of water from the well there at the gate of Bethlehem, just as he had done many times when he was 
a boy, because remember, he was from Bethlehem. He was a shepherd. He drank many times from that well. But the Philistines had taken Bethlehem at that time. So the three mighty men, they hear David say that, and they take off. And all of a sudden, I just imagine this, David is thinking, where are those guys? Where are those three mighty men? And all of a sudden, there's three guys come approaching the cave. And the watchman cries out, there's three men approaching, and, and they look, and here are three guys coming, and they're bloodied, and, and their clothes are tattered, and they have this, this jar of water that they got from the well of Bethlehem. David, for you. And David was so overwhelmed by their sacrifice and their faithfulness. You see, that's the fourth principle on how you can become a mighty man or woman of God. And that is your sacrifice and your service to the Lord, to the King. Are you really committed? Do you understand that, that being a Christian, that there is sacrifice to be faithful to the Lord? And David was so honored by this self-sacrifice of these three mighty men that he poured it out to the Lord as a sacrifice, saying the great sacrifice of these men could only be honored by giving it to the Lord as he poured it out in worship to the Lord. Paul the Apostle, at the end of his life, he said that I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, that I've dedicated and I've, I've sacrificed to the Lord. I've been faithful in my ministry because I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I know for me, for my own life, when I get to the end of my life, I don't want to look back at a life that was lazy in the Lord. Or saying, you know, really, there wasn't sacrifice and service that was there to the Lord. But I want to be one like these mighty men that were dedicated to the King, that would put themselves on the line to go get that water for David, their king. And what I love is when I see those who say, you know what, I'm going to put myself out there for service to the king, and you're going to take the shots, and you're going to be criticized, and you're going to be attacked. But that service and faithfulness to the Lord is going to make you a mighty man or woman of God. In verse 18, we see now Abishai, the brother of Joab. We've seen him quite a bit in, in 2 Samuel. The son of Zeruiah, the chief of another three, he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of, of a valiant man from Zeal, who had done many deeds, he had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of the pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with his. Uh, um, in, so he went down with him um, with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. And these things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the, the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David anointed him over his guard. So here is this guy, Benaiah, that he ends up killing this lion-like you know, warrior from Moab and also this Egyptian. Know that the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom may devour. He literally did kill a lion, it tells us as well, in, in a pit on a snowy day. 
and know that you and I, as I've mentioned to you, are to put on the whole armor of God because the roaring lion seeking to do battle with you. And also, he killed the Egyptian. You see, we do battle with the world. The world is always wanting to do battle with us. And here he kills this Egyptian. So doing battle is we put on the whole armor of God, just knowing that, Lord, I'm going to do battle with the enemies coming against me and the world's going to come against me, but, Lord, you're going to give me victory. So then the rest of the chapter, we won't read all these names as you continue reading here in verse 24 to the end of the chapter. There's all these names that are there. I'll let you do some bedtime reading, and you can take a look at that. But just some names of interest. Notice in verse 34 that I've made mention of this, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Do you know who Eliam is? Who is she? Don't you know who she is, David? This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, Uriah listed in verse 39. These guys are your mighty men. This is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, your, your entrusted counselor. David? Doesn't matter. Bring her to me. So that's why we've seen some of the things unfold, but these guys listed here as David's mighty men, and we've talked about that quite a bit. Out of that sin, there was a lot of people hurt and those who were close to David. And then as we finish the, the book of Second Samuel, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. So verse 1 here is kind of interesting. Um, we're not exactly sure when this took place, but we know that um, here that David is going to want to number Judah and Israel, the fighting men. When you read this, you think, you know, is God here moving David to do this? When you go to First Chronicles chapter 21, it tells us that Satan stood up against um, Israel and moved David to number Israel. You see, James tells us that God doesn't tempt us to sin. We do get tested of the Lord to do good. So here is David. He has pride that is in his heart, obviously, is verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of the Lord and the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? And nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the armies went out of the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. So David, all of a sudden, he is one that he wants to count the people. You think, what's the big deal about that? Well, first of all, in Exodus chapter 30, we know that the Lord said that only things that are to be numbered are the things that belong to God. That's what God said. Israel did not belong to David. Israel belonged to God. Now, we do know in the book of Numbers that they numbered the people, didn't they? But God told Moses, number the tribes. Get a census, and he told him at the end of the Exodus as well. Here, God did not tell David to number the people. And David numbered the people because what is telling us here is David had become prideful, and he was putting his trust in the number of fighting men that he had rather than in the Lord. Israel belongs to me, David, not to you. And you see, we can do that in such subtle ways in our own lives. 
We begin to put our trust in how much we have in our bank account or what we have possessions or in our you know, position in the community or at work or our prestige or prominence or whatever it might be. We begin to put our trust in those things. We can do it even in ministry. Those of us who are pastors, if we're not careful, we begin to trust in the budgets and we begin to trust in the number of people that are coming and in buildings and in programs and all of these other things rather than saying, Lord, you know what? We're going to trust in you. We're going to trust in you. You're our strength. Whether we have few or whether we have many. And you see, the world comes along and says, you're successful if you have these things or this prominence or this position or you know, whatever it might be in our own lives and even in the church, we measure success in that way. And we need to understand always every day that our strength and trust is in the Lord. That's where it is, in Him alone. So David here, he wants the people count it. And Joab, he, he knows something's not right. What do you mean you want to count the people and even the captains of the army? But it says in verse 4 that the king's you know, um, word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the armies. In verse 5, And they crossed over to Jordan and camped in Aora, in the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad towards Jazar. So here as you read through verses 5, through 9, you see all the areas that they went. And verse 8 tells us that they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, so almost 10 months of counting the, the fighting soldiers. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So you have 1.3 million fighting men of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a huge army. That is a strong nation. It is believed that Israel right now has a strong population between 6 and 7 million people. you got quite an army there, David. You're quite strong. And David had become prideful. But all of a sudden, in verse 10, David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And David knew that he had done wrong in numbering the people. And David realized that he had pride and there was conviction and that conviction led to confession. And it will always do that. Conviction will lead to confession. And he says, I've done foolishly. And any time that we're full of pride and act in pride, it is a foolish thing for us to do. So verse 11, David arose in the morning. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Seven years, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. How would you like to have those choices? You know, here are your three choices. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemy, three days of plague in the land. And here God is acting as a mediator. Come and tell me and I'll go and I'll tell the Lord. I'm so glad Jesus is our mediator. So David, here he said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord and his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. I'm going to fall into the hands of the Lord to a merciful God. And even in this time, he's recognizing that God is a merciful God. 
David would write in Psalm chapter 40, verse 11, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. So the Lord, verse 15, sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? And let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. So here this plague comes. Many die because of it. Now I know that the question that I'll get asked at the door is, Why did God do this? Because of David's sin. I don't know all why God does the things that he does, particularly when it comes to his judgment, but I do know this. That when you are a leader, whether it's in your home to your family, whether it's in the church, if you're a leader of any sort, when you sin, a whole lot of people get hurt. And a whole lot of innocent people can get hurt. And so we see that this plague goes across and and all of a sudden, Gad in verse 18 came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up to the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king and his face to the ground. And then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to a servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yoke of the oxen for wood. And all these, O king, Arana had given to the kings. So Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. And the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely, verse 24, buy it from you a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers of the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. A couple of closing notes as we close this book here. As we look at this story. That all of a sudden David buys his threshing floor where he's going to sacrifice to the Lord, burnt offerings. It was the threshing floor, a place of separating the wheat from the chaff, and now it's going to be a place of worship and sacrifice. And here's Arena. He's saying, David, you can have it to king. You can give it. And David says something in verse 24 I want to bring out very quickly. He says, you know what? Uh, I am not going to just take it, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing, which that would cost me nothing. Again, speaking of sacrifice and commitment and giving all to the Lord. He says, I'm not going to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, that which costs me nothing. Jesus said for us to be his disciples that you need to count the costs. And I think that sometimes the mentality can be, even in the churches, you know, I don't want to sacrifice, I don't want a full commitment. You know, has being a Christian cost you anything? Has it cost me anything? And I'm not talking about a drudgery kind of thing, but the thing is, it does cost us something. 
And I hope that we would understand that it will. Sometimes it costs you relationships. Sometimes it'll cost you a promotion at work, maybe. It's going to cost you things. But your commitment and sacrifice to the Lord, and I pray that none of us would ever get into the mentality of, Lord, I just want easy days and everything's hunky-dory, and I don't really want that cost you know, or sacrifice or commitment to you. Jesus said, count the cost. And giving sacrificially of the first fruits and of your time and of your heart. You know, it was several months ago that somebody was, you know, here and there kind of telling me, you know, what I love about this church is, you know, you guys never talk about money. And, you know, what I really love about Calvary Chapel is, you don't care if I give or anything and I don't have to join the church and, and, and all of this. And, and I was patient with them and, and I thought, is that all it really is? Just come and have a cup of coffee and have a donut and hear a good sermon and then that's it. Or a decent sermon. Here's David said, no, Arena, no. I'm not going to have this place of sacrifice, burn offerings with that which cost me nothing. You know, Jesus, as we come to the communion table here in just a minute, God loved you and me so much that it cost him his son. And I'm so glad that the Lord didn't have the attitude that sometimes that that Christians can have of, you know, just apathetic and lethargic and whatever, and I don't really want to commit or sacrifice. And understand my heart on this, folks. I'm not trying to lay guilt trips or anything like that, but really... For all of us to examine our hearts, Lord, I know that there's going to be a cost in following you and fully committed to you, but I know, Lord, that that's your desire for me to just trust in you. Because as we started out tonight, you're everything for me. And Lord, you are good. And you sent your son to die for me. It cost you, your son, because of your love and his sacrifice for us. And as we come to the communion table, that's what we remember as we hold the elements in our hands, that, Lord, that we come celebrating tonight and rejoicing and have real hope because of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for that, that, that Lord, sacrifice of Jesus for us. Without that, we would have no hope. And Lord, I do pray that tonight as we finish this book, looking at the life and reign of David, what a wonderful study it's been. There, there's so much, I think, more that we could have covered, but Lord, I thank you for the lessons and the applications that we've made tonight. And Lord, I pray that for us, that we would remember the sacrifice and the cost, Jesus, his body being broken for us and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin. And that as we come and as we enter into a time of worship, Lord, and to the communion table that's going to be opened up, that as we hold these communion elements in our hands, that, that truly, Lord, we would be brought into worship and just, Lord, just that reverence of you and, and awe of you and sending your son to die for us on Calvary's cross. I pray that all of us have recognized that and have that in our hearts. And Lord, we celebrate tonight at your table. And Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciples, you need to count the costs. And we know that there is costs in relationships or 
in the world and because we don't belong to this world, we're in the world. Lord, that we worship you so much and you are priority of our life that there's going to be sacrifice and commitment for you and service to you. But first, Lord, we just take this time to just come and thank you for saving us, being our salvation, forgiving us of our sins, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. So bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The communion.